I almost feel like I don't need to read the Scripture again for you this morning. You've you sung it not once, but twice. I don't know if you noticed that or not. But uh, if you still don't have it open, would you turn to Psalm 36? And from Psalm 36 this morning, what I'm hoping to do is explain to you, or at least highlight for you, where the engine of the Christian life comes from. I, mean, I, don't, uh, I don't know if you have thought much about what makes the Christian life run or what makes it work, but that's what I hope that you'll see today. I mean, it's, we, have a, we have a neighbor who has a, a Tesla, and I can't always tell if it's going or not. You know, it's across the street. I don't hear him pulling... Uh, pull in or out. I mean, Matt, Matt lives down my street. He's got, he's got a big diesel and I hear him at 6.30 in the morning heading off to work. But those Teslas come in and out and I don't know that they've gone because I can't really discern where the power comes from. Where the uh, energy that drives that comes from. Except that I see it plugged in every now and then, lights flashing uh, from across the street. And I say that because our mission statement as a church says our mission is to engage those disconnected from God so they delight in Him through Jesus. So they delight in Him through Jesus. Most church mission statements have something like that. That we're going to be about the Great Commission or the Great Commandment or we're going to do something to make disciples. We wanted ours to have a statement about where the motivation, where the power, where the engine comes from, where, where that energy happens. And it happens in the delight. And so, in Psalm 36, it's really quite clear that that's what is happening. So let's read it. Yeah, we'll read the whole thing. You've sung, you've sung variations. This is actually how it reads. And then we'll... Um, We'll talk about it. To the choir master. So you were, first of all, you were right to sing it, weren't you? To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the heart, to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out or hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. To the children of mankind, take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, they give, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we do see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. 
There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Now we just read that psalm, you might say, north to south, top to bottom, from start to finish. And a lot of times when you're reading your Bible, that's not a bad way to do it. To start at the front and go to the back, to start at the top go to the bottom. But Psalm 36 is crafted in a way that is poetic, that the, the structure of it, the crafting of it is designed to point you to the main idea. You could think of it as, as though it's, it's, it's an arrow being shot from, uh, from the, really from heaven itself so that you see the point. And so what I'm going to try and do is talk about it in such a way that we, we get to the point. And by doing that, I'm going to start really on the outsides. The first part and the last part go together, if you noticed. And then the, the middle parts go together. So that it points us to the very center, which happens to be in verse 7, the steadfast love of God. So the outsides of this, the the frame of this main idea has to do with the life of the wicked. It's to be sung to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. That's, That's its title. It's not really part of the psalm itself, but it alerts us to the fact that this is coming from a place of serving the Lord, of intimacy with the Lord, that David has a privileged position before God that he is, he is articulating what that means to him. So, what does he say about it? He talks about, first of all, the wicked. What kind of a way to start is this? Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Well, this is a, this is a way that is common in the Psalms, it's common in the Proverbs, to signal for the reader that there, there is more than one way to live life. Well, in fact, there are two ways to live life. There is God's way to live life, and there is another way to live life. There really, there really aren't a lot of categories of the way that you live life. There is the wicked and there is the upright. There are those who know God and those who don't. And so he's starting off by highlighting these two ways for us so that we recognize this is one of those psalms that, that points us or you know, points us to the choice that we have about how we're going to live. Starts off with the wrong way, you might say. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. What a profound description of the human condition. He suggests that transgression or sin has its own voice in our, not just in our heads, but deep within our hearts. And I think about that and I think about how we go about our lives and how the people around us go about our, their lives. And you think about it and you re- realize uh, 
that most of us don't see what is driving our choices. Most of us don't really understand what it is that makes us do what we do. And here he just exposes it right in the beginning. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. So deep, in fact, he doesn't recognize its voice. So deep, in fact, that its voice sounds like his voice. So that as he's thinking through his life, he's unable to identify the fact that the ideas and the suggestions that come to him are not the ideas of God. That the ideas that come to him have to do with rebellion toward God rather than submission toward God. And so, transgression is speaking to him deep within his heart. You know, I mean, there are reasons, right, that, that the cartoons that you see have a little angel on one shoulder and a little devil on the other shoulder. Why the, why the emperor's new groove that, that they have this conversation all the time. Because you and I have this conversation. Everyone around us has this conversation. And he's suggesting that it's much more subtle than the cartoons indicate. So subtle, in fact, that we don't really realize the voice of that little devil speaking to us deep within our heart. So there's a, the, the, the opening shot is a shot of warning about this other path that says you're not always even going to recognize when you're on it. Then he says, there is no fear of God before His eyes. That's, the, that's another categorical statement. There is no fear of God. And the fear of God signals for us that it's one of those psalms about how to live life. A wise life. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so there is this wise way, this, this God-fearing way, and there is this other way. And, and what he's describing at the, at the beginning is this other way where there is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, the idea of the fear of God is not so much that uh, you are to, to cower before God or run away from God, but rather that you are to reckon with God and to know that God is the one to whom you will give account. And so, practically speaking, every moment of every day, uh, you will recognize your accountability before God for what you say, for what you do. In fact, Jesus says we'll give account for every careless word. I mean, that's just staggering if you have as many careless words as I have. And so, there is no fear of God and think about this. This is how most of us live our lives. Where we don't really consider God. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's really getting at. Is are you thinking about God as you go about your daily activities so that when you give account to Him, you're prepared? Or have you blown Him off? 
Have you decided that really you're not going to care that much about what God thinks? And I'll tell you what, there are all sorts of ways people get around this. And it's deep within their hearts so much so they don't even recognize it. I mean, there are all kinds of uh, philosophical approaches to this that are so seemingly self-evident that we don't even consider how true they might be. I mean, you think about it just in terms of human origins. Okay? If, if in terms of human origins, you accept that science uh, can explain how we got here from nothing to where we are today, and, and that's your assumption, you may not even recognize that you then have no accountability before God because God's not in that equation. Whereas the story that the Bible tells us is that God made human beings in His image. Which immediately says you're accountable before God. And so, that's just one way. I mean, there's all other kinds of other practical ways. I mean, I think of I think of the funerals that I have been part of, where people talk about someone you know uh, who has become an angel, maybe, or because they're flying over the room looking down on us. And I'm thinking about this and thinking, you know what? They are failing to recognize who God is and what God is doing in this world. They are working to get away from the prospect that God will hold them accountable. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And it has to do with the story we tell ourselves about life. He said there is a story you can tell about your life where God's not part of the equation. And that's, that's the wrong story. That's, that's how he's getting started here. When you tell yourself that story, he says, you're flattering yourself in your own eyes. It's funny, I mean, probably, probably all of you have been flattered by somebody, right? I mean, told you look nice, told how smart you are, you know, how funny you are, whatever the case may be, and you're like, right. But guess what? We flatter ourselves all the time. We tell ourselves some kind of story. See, all of this you'll notice in verses 1, verse 2, verse 3, even the words of his mouth, we're telling ourselves a story about the way the world works. And here we're telling ourselves a false story. We're flattering ourselves. The story in particular is that our iniquity or our sin can't be found out or hated. That we, that, that our sin will not be discovered and it won't be detested. That you cannot, that, that God won't, that other people won't detect and detest your sin. That somehow you are safe and you're secure. That somehow God that is not part of the picture so you're gonna be fine doing whatever you want. I'm telling you, that story is everywhere. That story is everywhere. And when you hear that story, you need to recognize it as flattery. 
especially when you tell it to yourself. second part of this is that the lifestyle, the lifestyle of the, the person on this foolish path, the one who ceases to act wisely, that's why we know it's the foolish path, his words and his actions show his life. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He ceased to act wisely and do good. This person is characterized by being careless with their speech and by acting in ways that are not good and wise and beautiful. So much so, He suggests that he plots while on his bed. He plots trouble on his bed. The idea is he lays awake at night thinking of the trouble he can get into. Now, this isn't just when he's eight or when he's twelve. Though, some of you did that. Some of us did that at eight or twelve. This is as an adult thinking, what can I get away with? I wonder if I can manipulate this situation. So he's plotting it on his bed, and then he sets himself in a way that's not good. And literally, he stands in a way that's not good. And so it has a picture of his whole life when he's, when he's sleeping and when he's standing. Both of those times, he is looking for trouble and avoiding what's good and fails to reject what's evil. And so you see here, as he characterizes this foolish person who is wise in his own eyes, who makes his own rules for life. That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Makes his own rules. Throws off God's rules. Doesn't really care what God has to say about it. That person then is walking in a way not to be desired. He's walking in a way that you know we should reject. And to the degree we see ourselves in that portrait, we need to alter course. Well, that's his description of the, the wicked person or the person who is in trouble. Then, this psalm closes with a prayer about that person. The first part of the prayer is, God, don't let this person cause me trouble. Let not the foot of the arrogant come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Okay, and again, he, you know, it's like so many of the other Psalms where these fo- to be foolish is to oppose God and God's servant, the King, King David. And so he's praying, God, don't let that person, you know, cause me trouble. But the more substantial part of this prayer is in verse 12. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And I say that's the more profound part of it because that's the ultimate futility of this foolish life. And what he does in every way he can in describing it and then in praying about it is, God, don't let me be foolish and don't let my life be futile. 
They're fallen, thrust down, unable to rise. It's very much the picture that we have of these same two paths in the opening of the Psalms. The Psalm 1, it, it talks about how the uh, wise person chooses good friends, delights in the law of the Lord. He said, but the ungodly are not so. They're like the wicked, or they're like the, the chaff which the wind drives away. Sinners will not stand uh, the wicked will not stand in judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And in the very beginning of the Psalms, he points us to these two paths that are talked about here. And he says that they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. They're not going to stand in judgment. The ultimate end of this life is ruin. Now I'm just going to say, you're going to have to choose whether you believe that or not. Right? Whether what God says about this, whether that this lifestyle is going to be thrust down and unable to rise, or whether you think you're going to be fine. Because it's ultimately a life of faith. This Christian life is. And so, he prays. It says, let us see through the fog. See, because really, if you think about this, are the, the world is full of fog on this. You go outside of this building, you won't be able to tell by looking who's doing what. Who is on which path. You're, you're not going to be able to tell what uh, a person is believing or how they're acting just by looking necessarily. This has to do with the broad scope, the long range look at their life. And so there, there is one path that is foolish and futile. And then, that, that's a frame around what's really important here in the psalm. And what's really important is what, what I would call the engine of the life of faith. Namely, the character of God Himself. And so you're going to choose a lifestyle that rejects God or one that embraces the kind of God pictured inside of this frame. <clears throat> okay, here is the, the... I'm going to go backwards here. So, if you think of these parts as, you know, the, the frame as the A part and the B part, this is the, the B part of the good news. And it's His prayer. So, you've got three verses of prayer at the end. This is the prayer. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. He's letting us know, even as he's praying about this, there is another path. It's the path of knowing God. It's the path of being upright in heart. And don't think that upright is, means perfect, like I have never made a mistake. There are a lot of upright people who make mistakes. What he's describing is the path that you're on. You are, by virtue of knowing God, on a path that leads a different place than the opening of this psalm. And so his prayer is, God, continue your steadfast love. And basically, all he's asking is, God, let me experience your love. What a, what a simple but great prayer. I mean, I, I want you to know, I pray that for you all the time. I pray that for my own heart all the time. God, let me experience Your love. 
Because I'm so prone to look in other places for my satisfaction. I'm so prone to try and find something else to satisfy my heart. And so God, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. Well, that's his prayer. And that points us then to the center of this psalm where, where the, the beauty is. I mean, this is just, this is one of the most beautiful sections in all of the Bible, I think. And look where it starts. Your steadfast love. No surprise. That the, that the, the, the steadfast love or the covenant love, the promise God makes to love you is what's at stake here. Okay, that's what he's, whenever you read steadfast love, at least in the ESV, or your loving kindness, I think it is in the, uh, I don't know which version that is, um, there's all, but anytime you see this, you need to recognize that it is God's promise to love you. God's promise to be faithful to His people. And so, how good is that love? Your promise to love me. Your steadfast covenant love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Okay. So it's just a little bit, right? So God just loves you a little bit. Nah, probably not. Your faithfulness, which is the other side of, of course, keeping His promises, right? If He has promised to love you, if that's what steadfast love is, what do you need in order then to carry out that love? You need to be faithful to that promise to love. And that faithfulness extends to the clouds. Now some of you, please don't do this when you read Scripture. This is poetry. This is not, this is not a science manual. This is poetry about love, okay? So don't look at this and say, oh, steadfast love, that must be up to the stars. But the faithfulness oh, it only goes to the clouds. On a foggy day, it's not very good. Really. What he's saying is it's so immense, it expands from horizon to horizon, you can't comprehend how much God loves you and how faithful He is to you. Nor can you really get your head around His righteousness, how good and right God is. It's like the mountains. I mean, I remember, once you see it's plural mountains. You see that? It's plural mountains. It's not, when I moved out here to Oregon, I moved from here from Montana. In Montana, we had mountain ranges. And you would look and you would see, you would see eight mountains that looked a little bit like Mount Hood. As opposed to one mountain just standing all by itself. I mean, it's like this range of snow-capped peaks is the righteousness of God. And His judgment... Okay, this is what the person who is on the wrong path is trying to avoid. But his judgment is so wise and so deep, it's like the ocean. Where nobody's ever really seen the bottom of it. Now, if you were to, if you were to try and express how good God is, how loving He is, how how righteous He is, how wise He is in His judgment. And you were going to do it with metaphors, so you had to use the word, uh, or similes, like, like, right? Or as. You were going to do that. Could you pick 
bigger words than this? Could you express this in any more glorious terms? That the character of your God is such that you can trust Him every moment of every day? That it makes so much sense for you to be on the path that respects and honors Him instead of the path that doesn't respect Him? In keeping then with his exaggeration, you might say, with his expansive uh, descriptions, he says, man and beast you save, O Lord. I mean, it's like, no, it's not good enough to say he saves everybody. He saves everybody and their dog. Right? I mean, that's really the kind of thing he's saying. Because God is so such a Savior that He's not limited in any way about His saving. And then here's the very center of the psalm. And it's no surprise, the very center, verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. When you stop and think about it, brighter than the sunshine, more pleasant than the breeze, greener than the grass, whatever metaphor you want to pick, The steadfast love of God is sweeter to your soul than that. And that's what drives the Christian life. See, ultimately, to be be a believer, to be a Christian, is to be someone who is in love with this kind of a God. It's not to affirm certain facts. It's not to agree with a set of statements. It is to be in love with a person whose steadfast love exceeds the heavens. That's what it means to be a believer. That's what it means to be on the right path. See, so ultimately, what drives this is not my effort. You see, it's not really about me assenting to certain facts and then getting busy trying to to walk up this good path. Ultimately, what I find is that instead, I, I trust in this God. I really believe what it says here about how good He is. And then I am drawn like a magnet to His beauty. Like a moth to the, to the flame, you might say. Where I can't not Pursue this kind of God. And then, I mean, I'm just going to skip probably the best part, right? The refuge in the shadow of His wings. What a great image to be protected by and loved by this kind of God. I'm just going to skip that though. Let your own imaginations play with that. Um, But here is... Here is, I think, just uh, you know, one of the most beautiful statements too in all the Bible. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the rivers of your delights. For with you is a fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Do you see how that is drawing this pilgrim down this other path? How the engine of this is ultimately God Himself. How delighting in God is the thing 
that makes us walk in that path? They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them to drink from the rivers of your delights. The image here is every bit as expansive as, as the other was. I mean, the, the reason it is a river of delight is because you can drink from it and guess what? There's more going to come downstream again. And then you can do it again and there's, you will never run out because this river is constantly running. Life is such that when God gives it, it is a fountain of life and so you grab all that you can and you carry it away in your bucket and you take it home and you boil it and you enjoy it and then guess what? You go back and there's more. For with you is a fountain of life. And in your light, we see light. It's really the same picture that we have when Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. They can take it with them. And then they can come back and get more. There's always life with Jesus. Well, this is... This is good. I mean, I told you, this is good. But it's even better than it appears on the surface. One of the, one of the, somebody said that the Psalms are, are, are uh, beautiful because th- you can always find gold. You can just read and uh, just skim it. And along the surface, there are these gold nuggets that you can go and pick up all, uh, on your walk through the Psalms. But if you dig, there are veins of gold. Right? Veins where the riches are immeasurable. And this is one of those because I just have, I just have to share this with you. This is so, I think, encouraging to me. This word right here for delights. If you were to, if you were to read Hebrew, because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, if you were able to read Hebrew and you were to pronounce this word out loud, it would sound like this. Eden. Eden. One of the reasons we call that original garden Eden is that the word Eden itself means delight. And so, he says, you give them to drink from the river of your delights. Now, this was God's intent from the beginning. Do you see? Do you see that God's intent for human beings, for you and for me, was that we might be in fellowship with Him, in His presence, and that we would enjoy life and enjoy Him. Let me just remind you, right? Genesis 2, verse 10, "...a river flowed out of Eden." And the water from the garden there divided and became four rivers. This river of delight coming from the throne of God itself, the presence of God in the Garden of Eden was so satisfying that it divided in four. Okay, That's not really how rivers do, is it? Rivers normally come together. Four rivers might come into one. Here, this one is so abundant that it comes, breaks into four. And that's how God intended human life to be. That's what He created you and I to enjoy in the very beginning until sin, of course, fractured that. Sin ruined this relationship with God. 
Adam and Eve got kicked out of Eden. They got kicked out of delight, right? From then on, the pursuit of delight was always a, a struggle. It was always just around the next corner, over the next hilltop. Never fully satisfied. But, one day, one day, God will restore us to Eden. Look at the end of the story here. So I went from the first page, really, of your Bible, now to the last page of your Bible. Then the angel showed me, this is the, the writer of Revelation, angel showed me the river. Now listen, read this slowly as though you're reading poetry, right? Angel showed me the river of the water of life. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Very much like the river that flows from Eden. Very much like let them drink from the river of your delights. Through the middle of the street of the city and also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Reminding us again of Eden and its delights with its twelve kinds of fruit. Yielding its fruit each month, its leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. All of the brokenness that came in the fall of sin, or all fall of human beings at sin, is healed now at the end. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, for they'll have no need of light, uh, of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Now look at what we have here in Psalm 36, right? With you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. What the psalmist is doing is saying that the human condition really is created to enjoy this God. You can choose a different way if you like. You can tell yourself all kinds of stories over here about the way that it works or that it might work or that you hope that it works so that you're not accountable to this God. But being accountable to this God also entails you to all of His beauty. The fountain of life and in your light we see light. And so what are, what are you to do with this? Right? I mean, other than just appreciate the good poetry, what are you supposed to do with this? Well, I would suggest to you that in this, in this grand plan of God for human flourishing, from the Garden of Eden until uh, the New Jerusalem and the end of uh, all things, that God intends us to live happily delighting in Him. And then at the centerpiece of history stands the signpost. The thing that points you which way you ought to go. I said the thing. I meant the person. His name is Jesus. Because ultimately, what road you're on is determined 
by what you do with Jesus. If, in fact, you believe He came that you might have life and have it abundantly and you follow Him, you're on this path. If you say, no, I, I, I think my life's pretty good without Him, and you're on this path, that's your, that's your decision. But he is, he is the fork in the road, you might say. In fact, He Himself claimed that He was. And look at the language here from Psalm 36. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. They will have the flourishing that they were meant to have because they follow Me. And so here, even as Psalm 36 just compresses the whole story of the Bible, it also points us to Jesus who is at the center of history inviting us to take the way of life. And so my uh, encouragement to you is to do exactly um, what, what it says in our mission statement, right? To, to go from being disconnected from God to being connected with, with God. So that you go from telling yourself a story about life to delighting in God. And so that delighting in God on this path then turns you around and says, has you tell other people, come along with me. And that's the mission of the church. It's really that simple. But what drives it is a theological vision that the best life ever is not what happens to you now when you get a private jet or a bigger house or a nicer car. But your, the best life that comes to you is what happens to you when you're on this path delighting in God whose steadfast love reaches the heavens. That's what you're invited to when you're invited to follow Jesus. And so ultimately, right now, my invitation to you is won't you follow Jesus? Follow Him uh, today. Follow Him more tomorrow. Follow Him every day on this path that leads to life. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we are so thankful that You have had mercy enough to put us in the vicinity of Psalm 36 inviting us to enjoy You like this. God, would You help each of us to follow Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to believe that You have determined for us to flourish like this because You are that kind of God. I praise You for Your character, Your righteousness, Your judgment, Your steadfast love, Your faithfulness. God, but would You, would you help us to believe You and to follow You. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.